Uh, let's get into the, our text tonight, our sermon tonight. This semester, um, we're looking at a passage of scripture um, called the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the book of Matthew, which is the first uh, book in the New Testament. Uh, and we're looking at chapters five through seven. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And we're looking at this because we're at a moment in our lifetimes when I think it's clearer um, than ever for us that, the, that our world is not as it should be. There is, of course, a global pandemic. Um, fires are raging right now on our West Coast, and I hear that they're the worst that, that on record. Um, any moment, I think tonight or tomorrow morning, we're expecting two. I should, it's so overwhelming. I don't know how to appropriately relate to this stuff emotionally. Like, I want to laugh because it's so crazy. It's not funny. It's horrific. There are two hurricanes that are going to simultaneously hit our southern coasts. Um, various kinds of slavery are rampant around the world. Martyrdom and ethnic cleansing are still daily realities in different parts of our planet. Suicide, poverty, and crippling depression impact every echelon of our culture. Last night as I slept, riots and tear gas ex were exchanged in response to yet another shooting of an unarmed black man, Jacob Blake, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And then there are, of course, just the daily pressures and anxieties that we all experience in a shifting and uncertain world. And, and friends, even if all of that were redeemed, we still live in a world where we die. This world is not as it should be. This world's not as it could be. And in the midst of this world, Jesus tells us about another kingdom, another way of life that is breaking into this world through him. And I want you to hear the kingdom that he's offering and what it would look like to live. I want you to hear that and what it would look like for you to live within that kingdom. And it seems like an especially poignant time because our two leading presidential candidates are doing the same thing. They're promising a particular way of life and they're inviting you to follow them into their vision of the world. And friends, I want you to vote responsibly and with an understanding that our civic policies and our leaders have an immense impact on the lives of people in our country and in this world. But even if we did believe uh, in a presidential candidate's promise, um, our salvation isn't in politics. The redemption of this world won't come through the Democratic Party or through the Republican Party. It won't come through the Second Amendment or Black Lives Matter. Though these things are all important for us to engage responsibly and ethically, I want you to hear Jesus invite you to want something better, to want a world where no one sins in their anger, where people mean what they say, where we forgive one another and even love our enemies. A world where the poor are blessed. It's not just that Jesus can deliver what our presidents can't. It's that Jesus is offering an altogether different vision of the world. He calls it the kingdom of God. A kingdom so much better than anything that you have ever asked for or imagined. And my prayer is that you'd say yes to Jesus and to the kingdom that he's offering you. Okay, so Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' campaign speech, so to speak, for the kingdom of God. What it would look like and what it would look like for us to be a part of it. And in our passage tonight, uh, which was read earlier by Kirsten, if you didn't catch it, it's, it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. That's what I'm preaching out of tonight. 
In our passage, we read Jesus looking out over this crowd and saying, you are salt and light. And in order for us to really grasp this, and what this means and the implications of this, I, I want us to go all the way back to the beginning and talk about near, ancient Near Eastern religious cults. Okay, stick with me. Uh, I, this is good, I promise. Okay, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. In, in the ancient Near East, you would expect to, to see religious groups have something like a temple, like a place built for them to practice their devotion to their gods, a place where God and God or gods and their creation can meet, right? As a temple, there's still temples all over the world. Um, uh, in any case, in the ancient Near East, there were temples all over the place. And in the middle of that temple, what you would expect to find is some kind of idol, some kind of icon or an image of their gods that helped them to know what their gods were like. So if they believe that like a particular god was really powerful, maybe a god of war or a god that created, I don't know, volcanoes or I don't know, something like this, you would expect to see this image, this crafted image that represented that god. You would see, you would expect to see something that depicted strength. If they were worshiping gods that, that were gods or a god or goddess of fertility, of human fertility or of agricultural fertility, you would expect to see this icon, this image, this, this, this idol in the middle, you would expect to see it resemble something like fertility. Right? That's, that's what you would expect to see all over the ancient Near East. Okay, so you're with me so far. Temples, idols in the middle that represent gods. In the middle of their temples, they have these images to represent their gods. Well, the question I want to ask you, and I'll answer it too, but just to get your wheels turning, what was in the middle of the Hebrew people's temple? Later, the Hebrew people would be called Jews. Okay, what was in the middle of the temple that they built? Everybody else had idols. What was in the middle of theirs? Uh, in a sense, nothing. In the very middle of the Hebrew temple, there wasn't an image. There was no idol. There was no icon. It was an empty seat. Technically, it's called the mercy seat. What's going on with that? Why, why is it that everybody had these idols and icons and the Hebrew people didn't? Well, first, there is this reality that no human-made image could capture the essence of God. No lifeless idol can really represent the God who is the fountain of life. God, who, God is who God is. He can't fit into our created images. No picture or carving or statue is going to do him justice. It's better that we recognize that and leave that space for God to fill however God wants to fill it. It's an empty seat. So in one sense, it's empty because how dare we fill it with something which can't represent God? But there's, that's one sense. But there's another thing going on here. There's another sense to this. You see, God made his own temple. God, the God, made his own temple. You may have never thought about it this way or heard it expressed like this, but the Garden of Eden is a kind of temple. And in the midst of God's temple, the Garden of Eden, God fashions his own idol, an image which represents him. In his temple, he fashions this and he places his image right in the middle of it, male and female, he created them, humans. These are going to be God's living representations of who he is. When other religious cults make idols, they are lifeless and stuck in the middle of a building. When God makes images of himself, they are full of life and they're on the loose. They're called to go out among the earth so that the rest of creation may see them and knowing what God is like because of them, glorify God. 
And this is what I want you to see in this salt and light stuff. This is what I want you to see, that God has always been about showing off humanity and showing off his glory through them. And so very briefly, I'm just going to walk you through a few contours of, of, his, of the history of God's people. And, and I want you to notice how at each moment there's this outward focus. When God, I just said this a little bit ago, but when God made the whole earth as a temple, he made little images, little humans, as living representations of him so that they would be seen and people would know what God is like because of them. The beginning of creation. And later when he called Abram, this is Genesis 12, this is right when the people of Israel start. When he calls Abram, he says, Abram, I'm going to bless you to bless the whole earth. When he saves his people from slavery in the Exodus account, it was to make them, God says, a kingdom of priests for the whole world in order that the whole world might know him. When his people were in the Holy Land, after they were saved from slavery, they knew that God's blessing was on them, they said, to bring the whole earth to a knowledge of him. And even when they were in exile, God told them that he would make them a light to the nations. At every contour throughout their history, God made his people salt and light. Kirsten might have already, if you haven't, Kirsten, it would be great if you would drop there's a bunch of verses in case you want to know where I'm pulling some of that stuff from or where to anchor some of those, those moments in the history of God's people where you want to anchor those in the text. Here's just going to drop a series of verses for you to kind of serve as anchor points for what I just said. But the point here is that at every contour in the history of God's people, God made his people salt and light. So Jesus, when he stands up on the side of this mountain and he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he is telling the people that he's about what God has been up to from the beginning. And that they, even in their poverty, in their meekness, in their persecution, are salt and light still. These people... This crowd of people, if you read just before Matthew chapter 5, just a couple of verses, you'll get a picture of what this people is like. And as Jesus talks to them, you'll get to know what these people are like. This motley crew of people who've just been sick, or just like a week ago, were possessed by demons. This group of people who are poor, who are mourning, who are suffering, like you and me. These people are salt of the earth and light of the world. Listen, if you read like commentaries or Bible studies, you'll find all sorts of interesting details about salt and light. Salt's per, uh, preserving and purifying qualities or, or how in ancient, uh, in ancient uh, not ancient Near East, but in ancient Rome and the Greek culture, how cities were actually lit on hills as, and known as signs of, of hope and of hospitality for wanderers. And that's really interesting stuff. And I think you could geek out in some kind of Bible study about like the seven qualities of salt and how each of us can embody them. But tonight, I just want you to see one thing about salt and light. Just one thing. And that's this. Salt and light do not exist for themselves. You are salt. You are light. And salt and light don't exist for themselves. When my daughter, Audrey, she's my youngest, when she eats a teaspoon of salt at the dinner table to, to get a rise out of all of us, we all gag. And she does too. You see her like cheeks kind of go in like these, whatever those glands back there are kind of swell up or whatever. And she gets this like weird look and has to guzzle a bunch of water. At best, 
so at its best, when it's used for its best purposes, salt brings out the flavor of something other than itself. You don't taste salt when it's done well. You taste the food. Salt doesn't exist for its own sake. And for as cool as light is, it doesn't exist for itself. Like if I bought my son like a 40,000 lumen flashlight, which is super cool and you should buy boys, things like that. Um, and he was like, daddy, check out how cool this light is. And he just like held it up and was like staring right at it, 40,000 lumens in his face. Like I'd be really worried about him. And he'd probably lose his eyesight soon or something and his face would start burning um, and whatever. But the point here is that would be a weird use of a flashlight. A light doesn't exist for itself. It's not there to look at. It exists in order to see other things. You shine it on something else. There's actually tons of lights all around here, and, and, and I still haven't yet to just look at one of them. They're all here so that you can see me on stage uh, kind of popping off the back of this. I, our sound's a mess. Maybe light's okay. I don't know. But the point is, light doesn't exist for itself. You use light to discover and to find and to attend to things that light shines on. It doesn't exist for its own sake. Salt and light don't exist for themselves, just like you. God created you to bear his image in this world. You are salt and light. And not just salt for one dish or one table, but the salt of the earth. And not just light for your family or your friends, but the light of the world. Friends, I know some of us think, like, I mean, I don't know if you buy into the language so quickly, but if you could begin to hear the language seeping, if you begin to hear Jesus making claims about your identity, if you are watching this and you're in college, I know you got tons of questions about your identity. Jesus is saying who you are. I'm not, I don't even want to get into this. It says it on my notes. I should be careful when I go off notes, especially on a Zoom call when you've been on Zoom all day. But it's so interesting. In this passage, Jesus says for the first time, your Father in heaven. As if we can call God Almighty Father and we're in an intimate relationship with him. Jesus is making identity claims in the midst of this. If you could begin to grapple with that and begin to hear what Jesus has to say, maybe you respond to that with a little bit of pushback. And you think, you know what? I'm not salt and light. I know other people are. Maybe that guy on the camera is. Maybe that maybe my roommate is. I see them like don't struggle with the things I struggle with or something. But I'm not salt and light. But maybe I could be. If I just cleaned up a little bit, right? Or if I made better decisions, or if I changed my Enneagram type, or if I didn't have my history that I had, then maybe I could be salt and light. But I want you to notice in this text, Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus does not say, be salt and light. He doesn't say you could be salt and light. He says you are. You can't help it, friends. God made you this way to bear his image in the world and to bring out things in others like salt and to let others see and be seen like light. You are the salt of the earth and light of the world that the world might taste and see that the Lord is good. Or to put it in the way that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount, that others may see your good works, that others may see your good works give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Friends, by design, you are already salt and light. God loves you and has placed you squarely in the center of his redemptive plan for all creation. 
He's showing you off and his intention is that others would see your life and consider how amazing this God is that you follow. So right where you are right now, right where you are, right in the middle of this global pandemic, right in the midst of social distancing, right in the center of your family drama, right in the mess of you discovering who you are and what you want and why you want it. Right now, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Not when you figure all this out. Not when you get through this season. Right now, right where you are, salt, light. That others would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So here's the question that comes with a bit of a gulp. What do others see in you? And what does that tell them about God? For the unbelieving world, it does us no good to go to church on Sundays and post Bible verses on Instagram if, uh, if the work of our daily lives doesn't reflect the glory of God. If I read my Bible, you know, like I, I'm, I'm sitting around a bunch of folks and I read my Bible uh, and they see me praying or whatever, which Jesus will get to some of those things and the Sermon on the Mount. But if I do my religious stuff, you know, but I'm unkind and I'm unforgiving with my roommates, At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus blesses us and he affirms who we are and affirms that we are right in the middle of his purposes for the world and now he calls us to live like it. What do others see when they look at us? And what does that tell them about God? And if that question undoes you a little, if a question like that uh, begins to bring you to your knees, you know, and inside you, things start to fall apart a bit and you're like, man, I don't know if I have anything to offer. I don't know if I've been doing much of this right. I don't know what people see when they see me. If in other words, these are good words, you're experiencing a poverty in your spirit, then I have really good news. Remember how Jesus's sermon starts and begin again. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Friends tonight, where might God be inviting you to good work? like salt and light, or like the king of the kingdom that he's talking about, where might God be inviting you to exist for someone other than yourself? This is a really strange moment to, to have this kind of tone, I know. We are in, in the midst of this pandemic right now. Um, our vision is narrowed. A lot of us are in survival mode, and we're just looking out for me and mine. And I know things are so hard food shortages, there's a lot of homelessness amongst college students on this very campus. Families are incredibly stressed. Sickness is abounding. I, I know this is hard to hear. But I said earlier that Jesus is offering a vision of the world that's different than anything else the world has to offer. And so if you're, like, if you're not a Christian or you're on the fringes of this thing and you're hearing Jesus give a vision of his kingdom, here's what I want you to see. That in Jesus' kingdom, his citizens outdo others in honor. In Jesus' kingdom, his citizens consider others greater than themselves. They don't get theirs first. And so, and so that, if you're not already a citizen of God's kingdom, if you're not already following Jesus, this isn't a call for you to do more work. This is a call for those of you who already have found yourself um, identifying with Jesus as Lord, you already know yourself to be salt and light. You've already understood that you are blessed by God. And friends, 
hear his invitation, that he, he plans on putting you, and you are there now, right now where you are. You are in a place where you are salt and light to people. And his intention is that people see your good works and not glorify you, but see your good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. And so again, if you're on the outside, what my hope is is that you look at that and you go, man, that's a different kind of world. What would it look like if there was a kingdom where everybody considered others greater than themselves? And they were outdoing each other in honor and they weren't existing for themselves. This is the kind of kingdom that Jesus is breaking into the world and in and through his church right now. And if you follow Jesus, friends, hear that invitation. There's an unbelieving and dying world that needs another way of life and not the one that the DNC and the RNC are presenting necessarily right now. One better. Jesus' plan is you to put you right smack dab in the middle of his temple so that people see you and they know who God is because of the way that you live. If you don't know where to start, I want to commend to you the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We're going to go through that together this semester, but there's no reason to wait. Jesus doesn't stop his sermon here and then say goodnight. He continues on through it as people are asking the questions you and I might be asking right now. So literally, it's just a couple chapters. If you want to know where to start, say, Lord, um, where do you want me to, to sort of embrace good work that others might see that and glorify you right now? And I encourage you to ask that question as you read the rest of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Friends, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Let others see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let me pray for us. Father, um, this would be, this, this sounds counterintuitive and crazy right now, uh, but I think of how powerful it would be in the midst of this cultural moment for a bunch of young followers of your son Jesus to begin to radically live on behalf of others, to consider others' problems and circumstances greater than their own and to attend to them, not because they don't matter, but because they would believe and lean into the fact that the God of all creation cares enough for them that they are taken care of. And so their cup, so to speak, overflows. Or would you call your people on this campus to begin to lift their eyes to the horizon and look out for others, to be salt, who are bringing out the goodness in others and in the, the different spheres of influence that they're in, and to be light, showing people the way and, and highlighting things which have been hidden, which ought to be brought to light. And as that happens in this very place, in this very time, among these very people, we pray that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.